Open your Bibles to John chapter 14. If you're new, relatively new, we preach through books of the Bible here. We've been going through the Gospel of John for some 18 months in a series that we call Believe. And we are into John 14. We're going to be in verses 25 through, through 31. For those of you who, who don't know me, I'm originally from Chattanooga, Tennessee, God's country. And so back in the 80s, I would travel back and forth to Knoxville in my 1982 Nissan Sentra. Knoxville is where I went to school. And invariably, when I would get ready to go back up to the University of Tennessee, my parents would tell me, call us when you get there. Call us when you get there. Now, funny, we, we laugh at that now. I mean, call, okay? I mean, we, still empl- we don't employ barbaric forms of communication like this anymore, right? We, we just a simple meme or emoji would, would do now. But in, in that day, call us. We want to hear your voice. Something about hearing the voice. And, of course, invariably, I would promise to call. And invariably, what? I never would, okay? And so my parents knew exactly how long it took to get from our driveway to the parking lot of Andy Holt Apartments. It was an hour and 40 minutes and I kid you not, if it was an hour and 41 minutes, mom is blowing, not my cell phone, okay, the little rotary phone in our, in our, in our apartment, she was, she was blowing that up, why haven't you called, what's going on, um, you know, all those sorts of things, because for her and for my family, words represented life. Words were important, words communicated something. And here we are in John 14... And Jesus is in the middle of the most intense crisis and moment of trouble you can imagine. His disciples think they're heading to the throne room. Jesus is going to set up his his kingdom and his reign and make them his chief lieutenants. But instead, Jesus drops the bomb on them in the upper room and says, "It's it's it's not going to be that way. I'm going away. And you're going to be scattered In fact, Peter, you're going to deny me three times, and Judas over there, he's going to betray me, and all your dreams are going to kind of come tumbling down, and they are troubled. And in the middle of of this trouble, we've been looking these last few weeks, Jesus has given them a series of promises, promises to, to comfort them, promise of a place, and promise of his presence and his power. And last week we talked about the the promise of the Holy Spirit. But interestingly here in the middle of this discourse about trouble, Jesus stops to talk to them, wait for it, about words, about the spoken language, what he's communicated and what relevance it's going to have for them going forward. In fact, we're going to learn in this passage today that the most important thing that the Holy Spirit does for us today, you know, the Holy Spirit does a lot, and in the coming weeks we're going to be unpacking some of these things from this upper room discourse, but Jesus is going to tell us the most important thing the Holy Spirit does for us is that he gives us the very words of Christ. So we're going to be in John 14, beginning in verse 25. If you can, I'd love for you to stand if you're able to do that. If not, it's okay. We're going to read these, these seven verses and then, then unpack a couple of points. And Jesus is speaking. This is what he says. 
These things I have spoken to you while I am still with you. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. You heard me say to you, I am going away and I will come to you. If you loved me, you would have rejoiced because I am going to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. And now I have told you before it takes place, so that when it does take place, you may believe. I will no longer talk much with you, for the ruler of the world is coming. He has no claim on me, but I do as the Father has commanded me. So that the world may know that I love the Father. Rise up. Let us go from here. And may God bless the preaching of his word and write its truths upon our heart. You may take a seat. Two points, two points only this morning. We're going to talk first about the words of Jesus. And secondly, the work of the words of Jesus. So the words of Jesus, and then what do the words of Jesus specifically do for us? That, that's where we're heading. The words of Jesus, look at verse 25. Jesus says, these things I have spoken to you while I am still with you. Now, these things clearly refer to what he's been telling them, teaching them in this upper room discourse. Remember, he's been exhorting them, encouraging them. He's leaving. They're in despair. And so he's, he's, he's telling them, remember these things. But then in verse 6, listen to what he says. When I'm gone, the Holy Spirit will teach you all things. So what Jesus has in mind here for us is that he's going to bring to remembrance for the apostles, for the disciples, not just his teaching in the upper room that night, but the totality of his preaching and teaching over these past three years he's been with them. Now, just think about what that represents. The volumes, the tomes, the, the teachings, the discourses. How many, t- you know, John even reminds us that if all the, the sayings and teachings of Jesus were recorded and written down, it would fill up countless books. So this is a pretty massive promise but Jesus does promise them to bring it to remembrance. And here, here is why words are so important for the disciples. And we'll talk about why words are so important to us. You see, when Jesus leaves, when he departs, when he returns to heaven after his death and resurrection, he wants the apostles to continue to lead the church in his place, in his stead. They are to be his representatives. They are to be sort of the the officers, if you will, taking their orders from the general and, and, and the officers then in turn leading us, the troops. While he's gone, the way he leads, the way he instructs is through those 12 men, or 11 men now, and it will later be 12 and 13 with the Apostle Paul. Reminds me that, you know, when, 
we'll leave our kids and don't do this so much anymore because they're, they're old enough to stay. I would say they're old enough to stay by themselves, but in theory they are. But anyway, we, 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 would, we would leave them housing. We'd always leave written instructions for the babysitters, right? Because this, I mean, in those, in those instructions, they were like the holy writ of Scripture, right? So, so like, like the kids would parse those out. Mom and dad said that we could go to Newberry twice, not just once, okay? And, and the cups will be this amount, and it was, it was the standard. It was the, you know, and if there's ever a dispute, you know, you got to call in, you got to call mom and dad on FaceTime to give the final word. This is the same sort of idea. The apostles were to be the final word just as if Jesus was with them after he's gone. So if you look at verse 26... Jesus gives a promise. He says, this Holy Spirit, my spirit, is going to teach you all things. And we have to ask, no, no, that's interesting. Hasn't Jesus already been teaching them? What what does that mean? I'm going to continue to teach you all things. Well, the word teach literally means instruct or explain. And and sort of when when you dig down into that a little bit, you realize that, you know, when you learn something new, In a way, you are having something revealed to you, not only that you didn't know, but that's always been there, but it's just sort of been hidden from you. You know, you're you're not learning you're not learning brand new truths just because you've learned that that's not what makes them brand new. What makes them relevant and true is that you've never seen that before, and now your eyes are being opened to, to to new instruction. So let me just give you an example of this. I know we have some art major people and there's all sort of controversy about what I'm about to talk about, but, but save, your, save your emails, please. But, you know, Michelangelo, when he painted the Sistine Chapel, you know, some 500 years ago, used a method called, I don't even know what this means, fresco paintings. I guess that sounds like Frito to me. But anyway, up until about 1980, If you were a tourist and you went into the Sistine Chapel and looked up and saw the countless murals that Michelangelo had meticulously painted on the stone there, you would no doubt be impressed. I mean, they were, um, I mean, just multiple scenes from the Bible and people and they were meticulously done. But what, what had happened over time is that those paintings had grown darker and darker you know, because the candles from the, the, the ceremonies, the incense, the pollution in the city, the elements, it all, over time, there was just kind of this layer of soot. It was like looking at them through like a pair of sunglasses. But see, if that was your first time ever seeing them, you wouldn't know that. You would just say, well, there's, there's some paintings that are, that are pretty cool. Well, back in 1980, a restoration project was undertaken, and they began to, they developed a process where they, and this is what was controversial, but they, they developed a process where they uh, were supposed to take everything away from the paintings that wasn't a part of the original painting and to leave the original. And when they did this, they were astounded. They were amazed at how spectacular these paintings were. The bright, vivid colors. The, they had not been seen like this in three, four 500 years. Now, they were there the whole time, but nobody could really see them the way they were intended to be. 
in a lot of ways, that's how Jesus' teaching functioned in relationship to the disciples while he was with them on earth. He would teach them, and they would kind of understand, but kind of not really. So think about all the times this has happened in the Gospel of John. Remember, Jesus went to the temple, and he told them, hey, tear this temple down, boys, and I will rebuild it in three days. And they were all kind of like, sure, I'm, uh, I mean, he's God, and I mean, yeah, I guess he could rebuild the temple. They didn't know what he was talking about. But after he arose from the dead and went back to heaven, listen to what John 2.22 says. But Jesus was speaking about the, what, temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this. And they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. See how the Holy Spirit worked in bringing remembrance to the disciples? He gave them eyes and ears later on to truly understand what he was teaching at the time. See, in this way, they, they sort of had this repository of knowledge that was, that was kind of at their disposal in their brains. They didn't know what it all meant. But by virtue of the promise of the Holy Spirit, as the disciples began to record the words of Jesus, as they began to reflect on them and teach the church, the Holy Spirit brought back in remembrance for them, and they were like, oh, so that's what that meant. That's what, that's what Jesus was saying. Oh, man, that, I mean, that's... That's what he was getting at at that particular time. They weren't discovering new truths. Jesus had already said them. What they were discovering were new insights and new applications and seeing things that were always there, but they just couldn't see them before. Guys, this, is, this tells us something really, really important about our own study of the Word of God. See, a lot of times... We think of the Bible as like a history book or, or, a, or a, a collection of stories. Now, good stories, okay, interesting, you know, Harry Potter-ish level, you know, we, we get that, okay, they're, they're, they're good, but once you've read them two or three or four times, it's kind of like, let's put this aside. I, I've read all that, Pastor Paul. I know the Bible. I've read through the Bible two or three, four times, and, and I know the stories, I know the facts, I know the dates. That's, that's the wrong way to look at the study of God's Word. See, one of the reasons ongoing study of God's Word is so important is that the Holy Spirit won't reveal to you new truths that were never there before, like out of thin air, but the Holy Spirit will illuminate parts of Scripture to you and you will see things that you've never seen. When you read Psalm 23... How you read that as a 25-year-old and a 75-year-old is radically different, isn't it? The way that, the way that the, your life circumstance, your cultural context, what's going on in your life, what's going on in the life of your family, those in your small group, the Holy Spirit is faithful when we study the Word of God to illuminate to show us things that have always been there, but we just didn't fully understand. So we've been talking at Reboot about incorporating the rhythm of God's word into our lives. And, and Jesus is impressing this point on us. We never, ever, listen, 
church, get past the need for the Word of God. Do, do, and uh, here's something that'll, that, that's, I still don't know what I think about this, but I'm going to kind of verbally process it with you. Can I, can I do that? Um, last week, we talked about this idea that the Holy Spirit, when we accept, place our faith in Christ, is indwelling us. But the Holy Spirit never stops indwelling us even in heaven. The Holy Spirit indwells us for all eternity. So, I mean, that's kind of mind-blowing. But there's another promise in Scripture that, that comes from places like Isaiah 48, where it tells us that the Word of God will endure forever. I want you to think about that. The Holy Spirit will live in you forever. The Word of God will live forever. I don't know exactly what that means. But I do know that even in heaven, we will never get past our need for God's word applied to our hearts through his Holy Spirit. See, I think, you know, a lot of times we think about heaven, that sounds so boring. It's like, oh my gosh, we do the same thing every day and we're around the throne and we're doing this and we're doing that. No, 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 no. Every day in heaven, I believe will be a new frontier in knowing who and more about the God of this universe. John Piper used this example. He said, it, our, our growing in the knowledge of God throughout eternity is going to be like scaling a set of, of ama- an amazing mountain range that you've always wanted to scale. And you get to the peak and you're looking out on the valley and it's just unbelievable. It's stunning. You've reached your goal. But not really, because then you'll look in the distance and there's another mountain range that's just as enticing, just as inviting, that we're just as eager to try to conquer. I think God's Spirit, through His Word, will give us an eternity full of new understanding and new experience and new knowledge of who God is. But in the meantime, meantime, he said, I've left you my word. Not, not, this is not these apostles' opinions. This is not fabricated truths from these, from these men. This is things that I have given them to say. These are the teachings that I have provided for them. Look back at verse 26, and I'm going to bring them into remembrance. And we have to think, my gosh, that is like a massive catalog encyclopedia of stuff. Now, if you're under 30 years of old, let me explain the idea of the encyclopedia, okay? Volumes, there's a salesman, you know, you get the whole thing. Remember when we first got our first set of encyclopedias, it was in the late 70s, and I endeavored, just because I'm this kind of guy, I really wanted to read all, through every one of those, right? And, and I remember starting to read, and I mean, it was, I started to read and just thinking, man, how does one person know all of this stuff, right? That was kind of my, that was kind of my thought. Didn't realize until later that, that actually there's multiple contributors, but one editor or collaborator that brings everything together. See, what we have in the Bible is not a series of books, okay? Sort of put together by independent collaborators. That, that's not what we have, there's one collaborator, he is the Holy Spirit. This is not like, well, this is John's take, and this is Matthew's take, and this is, you know, no, 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 no. 
speaking uniquely through their personalities, through their life experiences. The Holy Spirit illuminates, guides, directs as they are rewriting and recording. I mean, I can just imagine even this, remember, this was written 60 years after Jesus had returned to heaven. And I can imagine John as an apostle, who was the last living apostle, reflecting back on those teachings, reflecting back on those sayings, writing them down and saying, oh, that's what he meant. And he's given that for us. See, this is really, really crucial, really, really important for how we evaluate true Christianity, true, authentic, biblical Christianity, because there is, there is a war being waged inside the quote-unquote church about the true expression of Jesus and the ongoing truths of the gospel that he's given to us. Now, Matthew 28 is very clear. He said, authority has been given to the apostles to lead and instruct the church. And the way that instruction has happened has been through the written word. So if you think about every New Testament book, we don't have time to go through all of them. All of them were accepted as authoritative because they came from the lips or pens of an apostle, Matthew, John, the apostle Paul, who Jesus appeared to on the road to Damascus, or because they were a close associate of an apostle. So Mark was best buddies with whom? Peter. Paul was best buddies with whom? Luke. I think Luke wrote a couple books in the New Testament. And the church cherished these. The church church revered them. Now understand something. We don't worship the Bible. This is not Father, Son, and Holy Bible. We worship whom the Bible points to. But you cannot... You cannot know God. You cannot know Jesus apart from the Word. You cannot separate those two things. Um, All sorts of theological mischief happens when we try. Now, let me just speak to a couple of these because I think they're important. And I try not to make these super-duper academic, but things that you might more hear, read, hear on the radio, read in a Christian book, see in the Christian bookstore, read on a blog site. One of these, and I think these are really dangerous, these are false, false teachings that, that can really harm us spiritually. One thing we oftentimes hear is that the words of Jesus, so if you, if, you, if you have your Bibles, if you have a real Bible that's in print and not one on your phone, okay, if you have one of those, he who has ears, let him hear, you'll notice that the, the, the color of Jesus' words are in what? Red. Okay, now, and this is not because like John had like a highlight marker was going through when he, that's, that's not how that worked. It was something editors have done to kind of signify the words of Jesus. Well, there's this idea that we ought to value the words of Jesus, the red letters above all other parts of the Bible. So that stuff in the Old Testament about holiness and glory and killings and That's just embarrassing. Let's leave that alone. Or the New Testament, submission and roles and sexuality. I mean, those are also embarrassing. Let's just really stick to what Jesus says. And and, and that way we can, you know, Jesus is sort of this progressive guy who like, he kind of continually reveals truth to us that conforms to an emerging age. And you see what happens, right? 
So Jesus ends up being made in the image of whatever we happen to value culturally at the time. Here's the problem with this. Number one, Jesus himself commended the authority of the Old Testament. He said, I didn't come to abolish the law. I came to what? Fulfill it. Every jot and tittle. On the road to Emmaus, he unpacks Luke's, in Luke 24, he unpacks the Old Testament and says, not only is this not irrelevant or embarrassing, this in fact is all about me. Now granted, certain parts of the Old Testament, the civil law, the ceremonial law, we believe were fulfilled in Christ and he asks us to acknowledge and not practice those in those particular ways. But Jesus was never embarrassed by the Old Testament. He championed it. He taught from it. He held it up. As for the words of Jesus holding sway over other New Testament writers, guys, the problem with elevating the Gospels over the rest of the New Testament is that Jesus himself in John 14 commissioned the apostles to make record of his teaching. This doesn't make any sense. Paul, Jesus, you know, in, a lot of times we don't like what Paul says, right? Paul just goes around sticking his finger where it doesn't belong. Talking about roles and the home and marriage and all that sort of stuff. Who commissioned Paul? Jesus. He said, this man will be my witness. I will build the Gentile church through this, through this man. Peter. Certain things we may not like Peter saying. What did Jesus say about Peter? He said, upon Peter's leadership, upon his confession, I'm going to build my church. See, guys, when we lose the external authority of the whole word of God, we're, we're adrift. We're, we're lost. There, there, there is no backstop for us. As soon as we begin tinkering and tampering and saying, well, this applies and this doesn't apply, and the words of Jesus above the words of Paul, we are, we are hopelessly lost. You cannot untether God's word and claims that it makes from the spirit. You can't do that. Don't say, I'm a spirit person. That word stuff, meh. Also, don't say, I'm a word person, and that spirit stuff, nah, nah. don't do that either. They both work together, and the chief witness of the Holy Spirit is to reveal, to illuminate, to hold up the person of Jesus Christ. And the only reliable record of who Jesus Christ is is found where? Here in God's word. So that's the words of Jesus and why they're so important. Lastly, let me just spend a few minutes on this. What work does God do in and through us because of these words? Look at verse 27. He says, my peace I give you, my peace I leave with you. Now, Jesus here is drawing, I think, upon the Jewish practice of offering peace to one another or shalom. So, so, so peace is not like, you know, peace out, okay, that, that sort of thing. It's not um, peace doesn't mean the absence of conflicts, okay. It's not peaceful, easy feeling, you know, all, it's not all that stuff. Literally, it means deep, lasting wholeness, 
It means enduring spiritual rest. When you're, when you, in the Old Testament, when you offered shalom or peace to someone, you were wishing or praying God's absolute spiritual best for that someone. And Jesus is saying, I'm here, and through my word, I'm offering your absolute spiritual best. Now, now let me tell you how I'm going to, how that's going to be activated. So look back at the text. He says, this peace now is not as the world gives. So what is Jesus referring to there? This is at the height of, of, of Pax Romana, the, the peace of Rome, where, where Rome ruled civilized, the civilized world with what? An iron fist. There was peace, all right, but why was there peace? Because there was a garrison of Roman soldiers right outside your door. So this was a tense kind of peace. This was a, a fragile kind of peace. There was always some uprising happening that had to be put down. Peace was sort of defined as the ability to maintain the status quo, to not have any overt conflict, but it wasn't real peace. Because anyone knew at any times if somebody got out of line, it was going to disrupt the whole order. It, it's, it's kind of like, did we, did we have peace, the USA, with the Soviet Union? It's a hard question. We had a detente. We had thousands of nuclear missiles pointed at one another. We had mutual shared destruction. But was it peace? See, Jesus says, I came to give, look back at the text, a different peace. Now, that word give literally means to send forth, or in the King James, it might say something like bequeath. I bequeath you peace. Try that one, parents. I bequeath, I bequeath you peace. Bequeath as in like a last will and testament. Like I bequeath you this particular possession or, or what have you. Now, obviously, what activates the bequeathing? A death. That's how a will is activated. That's how a will is set in motion when the person who writes the will dies. When Jesus says, I give you my peace, he's pointing to the fact that, according to the Bible, true peace only happens through a death. Look at verse 30. He, Jesus says, the ruler of the world is coming. Now here he's, he's clearly referring to Satan. Satan is coming. He's put it into the hearts of Judas and evil men to betray me, to, to put me on a, a farce of a trial. Um, he, Satan appears to be ruling the day because I'm going to die. But I love the second part of verse 30. But then it says, he has no claim on me. Literally, Satan's got nothing on me. That's what it literally means. See, what Satan doesn't know, Jesus is saying, is that my death is going to be the very means by which I make peace with man. My death is going to be the very means by which God makes peace with sinful mankind. Satan doesn't understand it, but but. What he thinks is part of his grand design is part of a grander design. God's bringing peace 
through my crucifixion on a cross. See, peace was purchased at an amazingly eternal cost to God. But it was always his grand design for Jesus to die. And that peace happens as we understand and testify to and submit to the witness of who Jesus Christ is according to his word. You know, there's another movement of thought, you've heard me mention it before, which sees this idea of Jesus dying for sins as something barbaric, as something primitive. Just this idea of blood and sacrifice, it just sounds so uncouth and, and not modern and, and offends sensibilities. Because the, the heart of Jesus' death, his substitutionary atonement, you only stray from that when you stray from the Word of God because it is written on every page. Jesus has given us his Word so that we have a sure and sturdy foundation. So I was reminded um, this week about the power of, of the word in someone's life, even in death. At last Sunday, I asked you to, to pray for Deborah Pacetti, her family. She had been moved to hospice care. One day later, last Monday, Deborah passed away. And her funeral was here on Friday, right, right in this room. And some of you weren't around for this, but about five years ago, after Deborah had been diagnosed with stage four cancer that had gone to her liver, um, she'd been undergoing treatment for about a, about a year, and we did a testimonial video with her where she talked about, in this video made five years ago, of how she saw God's sovereign hand at the very center of her suffering that God had designed this suffering, that God had brought this into her life for the purpose of displaying his glory through her. She talked about the salvation of one of her sons and, and how God brought that directly out of this particular crisis that she was going through. And she was very clear, even if God doesn't heal me physically, he's got, he's got this amazing purpose and plan. And, and, and here's, here, here's what's interesting. We're watching all this in here five years later. It's a, it's a unique thing to have someone give a prophetic word over their own death and to say, this is what God is doing and this is how it works. But here's the thing that was most amazing to me. It was, it was, it was incredible how the word of God just oozed from Deborah. That, that she had this repository of information she had been studying and reading for 30 or 40 years as a believer. And as God brought this crisis into her life and the illuminating work of the Holy Spirit shone into her heart, she came to understand, experience, and apply God's word in radically new ways. See, I oftentimes tell people this, that the time to prepare for the crisis is not the crisis. Okay, you, the crisis is about a lot of things. But when we tether ourselves to the word of God and build our lives upon it and our souls, 
then it's a sure and firm foundation for whatever storm may come. Think of Deborah here. She still filled with his spirit, beginning to, to learn even new things about her Savior. But in the meantime, God has given us this. So let's treasure it and build our lives upon it. Let's pray.